we are back into our series. And I'm going to be dealing with an issue that I think most of us have dealt with before with people. And that is people who say, well, I want to believe, but all Christians are hypocrites. How many of you ever heard that before? You know, I would go to church with you, but you know what? It's just a bunch of hypocrites. I know people who go there, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. Barna uh, Group, they did a study uh, back in 2007, and they asked non-Christians. They said, why, why do you reject Christianity? And here are the top three based on what that study revealed. The number one thing is, they, they said, because Christians are anti-homosexual. 87% says it's because we're judgmental. And 85% said it's because we are hypocritical. Some say, well, you know what, you guys, you talk about pro-life, but what about the Crusades? What about millions who were killed in the name of, of Jesus? What about the Inquisition, where people were tortured and, and murdered? What about, you know, the witch trials that happened in Europe, and they say millions of women were killed during these, these witch hunts? And they'll say, you know, what about all the social judgment and the exclusion and the slavery the church supported throughout history? Missy and I, we were, when we were on our cruise, Missy overheard someone at a table next to us, and they were having a conversation about religion. One guy, he's anti-Christianity, and he said, he said, every war was started by religion. Then you have this guy, Steven Weinberg. Some of you are probably familiar with him. He's a theoretical physicist. He said good people will do good things. Bad people will do bad things. But for good people to do bad things, that takes religion. And so the question is, how do we answer that? What, what do we do with, with something like that? Mark Clark wrote a book entitled The Problem of God. And and he helps to answer some of the things that actually we're dealing with in this series. And I think he offers up some things that I'm going to share, some of those things with you here this morning, that I believe is, is very helpful. And the first thing he says to us is, we need to admit some things. There are some things that have been done in the past. There are some ways that people who say they are Christians, things that they have done, even today, that are wrong, that are horrible. And this is especially true when religion becomes institutionalized and politicized. Jesus began his ministry this way. He says to repent. Amen. Hold on, George. You're going to scare people. <laughs> okay, brother. But to repent means to turn, to change. But have you ever thought about who Jesus was talking to? Jesus was talking to the religious people of the day. Because we all have things, all of us have things that we do wrong, that we sin, and we need to repent of. We need to take responsibility for institutions who have who have carried the name of Jesus in a wrongful way, but we also have to clarify to people that these institutions don't always represent Jesus. They don't always represent his teachings. And so we know that there are fake disciples out there. There are fake disciples, believe it or not, 
that fill churches sometimes. And I think we know that, but I think it's important to help other people to understand that hold Christians responsible for every act that is done by a crazy person who has a Jesus bumper sticker on their car. It doesn't mean that they are truly followers of Jesus. Even Jesus said back in his days, it's not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. He says, those who do the will of my Father. And, and he says, look, I know that on that day, there's going to be those who say, well, look, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I do a lot of powerful things in your name? And Jesus said, but I'm going to say on that day, I did not know you. Because just because we proclaim a name of Christ and we say we're doing things in the name of Jesus doesn't mean that we're actually doing the will of God. Churches are filled with people who don't cuss, they don't watch bad movies, they, they give each week, but they may not actually know or love or, or understand or walk with God. In fact, what they have is more of a cultural Christianity, and we're going to kind of talk about that as we go. Some of Jesus' most critical speeches were for those who were the religious elite of the day. Read Matthew chapter 13 tonight. Jesus pronounces these seven woes upon the religious elite. Now, you add to that number those who claim to be Christians, and they never even darken the door of a church. Back in 2020, there was a, there was a study that was done. Um, whoops, I'm going the wrong way. A study that was done on people who say that they are evangelicals. 26.7% of self-identified evangelicals reported never or seldom attending church. And that only 49.9%, only half, reported actually going weekly or more. I actually saw something on this this weekend, and it seems that these numbers are even higher than this. Or worse, when I say higher. It is a great example of how some people are very loose with that term Christian. And my point is the terrible things done in the name of Christianity are most often not done because the teachings of Christianity are bad, but because some people who claim to follow Christ don't actually know him or follow him, and they do not exemplify any of the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control in the Scriptures, such as this one here in 1 John chapter 3. He says, look, there, if, if there is no outward change in behavior and allegiance and love and passion, Jesus would say, I'm going to question whether or not you are even my disciple. What did James say about the demons? He says, they believe. The demons believe. They believe in the existence of God. The very first lesson that we talked about, right? Well, that's good, right? But he says, but they're not saved. Why? Because he says, faith has to be God-honoring. Faith without works, it's dead. Just a profession means nothing. But let me say this. The church is not a place for perfect people. Sometimes people get this idea that, okay, 
If you're a Christian, if you say you're a Christian, that means that you follow all the laws perfectly, that you uh, have your life just in wonderful order. And we forget about what the gospel is about. The gospel is good news. It is about what God has done for us. That Jesus died in our place. He lived the perfect life because we couldn't. And that's why we live in humble dependence upon the grace of God. He showers his favor on people who do not deserve it. The church is filled with broken and messed up people. Even, even those who are, are mature and those who have been in the church a long time and people who have been striving to live for God, even they, at times, they, they, they find themselves thinking about themselves instead of God. They, they find themselves getting back into the ways of the world or, or falling into the philosophies of the world over that of which Christ has taught us. And so we continue to seek the grace of God in humility. Philippians, here the Apostle Paul, he says, Look, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. But listen, it's more than just I believe. He says, I want to know Christ. Uh, and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. He says, I've given up everything to know this Jesus. He is an apostle. He is an ambassador of Christ. And right after this, you know what he says? But I don't mean to say that I already have achieved this or that I've reached perfection. He says, but I do press on. I do keep fighting and, and trying my best to conform to the image of Jesus. People are in different places in the process of becoming like Christ. Did you know that? There are some people, just because they're Christians, doesn't mean they're mature Christians. Some people have come a very long way. They, they, maybe they were raised in a home where, where mama was in and out of jail or dad overdosed. Or maybe where the kids, they joined gangs because they're just trying to find some kind of semblance of a family. And even in those homes, maybe that, you know, things were good. Maybe they were taught these, these worldly philosophies such as, you know, you go and you take what you want for yourself. Because if you don't do that and you don't look just out for yourself, nobody else is going to do that. And other types of philosophies. And so we don't come out of the waters of baptism and all of a sudden everything, all these thoughts, all these backgrounds and all of this other stuff, that it just suddenly disappears. It doesn't happen that way. And so I think instead of us asking, well, where is this person spiritually? Where are they morally? I think maybe the first question we need to ask is, how far have they come? How far did they, what did they have to overcome? The church is made up of imperfect, messed up folks. And it can look hypocritical to the people who are out here in our world while they're still trying to conform to the image of God. The gospel call is for us to turn from our sinful ways and to become more like Jesus. We will never be perfect. 
But we tell the world, if you want to see perfection, you don't look to us. You look to Jesus. Don't look to the people who are fumbling and stumbling and just doing their best to try to walk in his steps. Jesus is the form of perfection. Not us. But let's talk about our violent past. We don't always like to talk about that. In fact, whenever there's a negative in our past, a lot of times we just don't want to have to deal with it. But I think it's important that we do. When we were in Austria, one of our tour guides said uh, her parents, that when they went to school, they didn't learn anything about World War II. They didn't talk about it. They, they, they learned about World War I, but they never talked about World War II. This was in the 60s. And said, because the people of Austria still didn't know what to say about it because of what happened with Hitler and, and all the things that happened right there in their own country. Well, that's changed a lot. In fact, you, if you go over there in Germany and Austria, they, will, they talk about it very freely, about the wrongs that had occurred. But sometimes we just don't like to talk about those things. And, and it's not enough to say, well, you know what? I didn't live back then. Don't judge me off of it. But you know what? I think we also have a responsibility to give an answer to certain things. We need to understand the past because we need to understand some of the accusations that's made against us as Christians. They're conspiracy theories. They're exaggerations. They're half-truths that have been put out there by skeptics. There's a word for people who uh, study history. It's known as historical revisionism. And it's when someone wants to alter history. Sometimes they may do it for benevolent reasons. Maybe they, you know, they feel bad about what happened, so they're trying to make it sound better. Sometimes it's for malicious reasons, which I think is what we often see with Christianity. But there are revisionists. I grew up in Alabama. And listen, when I was growing up as a kid... You know, the things that we were taught at that time was, look, the Civil War, you know, we, we didn't, we, you know, none of us agree with slavery or anything else. But how do we, how do we say that, um, you know, the South was okay? So what, what we heard was, listen, the Civil War was not over slavery. It was over states' rights. And that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of historical revisionism that you hear. The first week we talked in here about um, those who, uh, the guy that said, look, um, the Holocaust didn't occur. He had an agenda. He had a malicious agenda, in fact. But let's consider the Crusades and the Inquisition. These are often referred to as religious wars where the church slaughtered tens of thousands of innocent Muslims. In Europe at the time, church and state were not separate. And I think that's very important. And I think it's not just important to understand what's happened over there. I think it's important for where we are today and being very careful of Christian nationalism. In Europe at the time, church and state were not separate. They waged wars under a Catholic banner. Which is why people concluded that the Crusades are an example of how they were trying to expand the church. But it was politicians who were running the country. It was just the banner that they were under. And, and it wasn't about expanding the Catholic Church as much as it was expanding European territory. 
Many of these fights were political, nationalistic battles. They weren't religious ones. In many cases, they were fought defensively, one in which to protect Europeans from, from Muslims invading, some of which were, were to, to recapture land where Muslims had invaded and taken those lands. The Roman, the Roman Empire... If you know anything about it and know about it in the time of, of the New Testament, you realize the Roman Empire began to persecute Christians. But in the 4th century, Constantine converted to Christianity. And so he said, from here on out, Christianity is the religion of the Roman Empire. But here's the thing. The Roman Empire just continued to do what they had always done. Before they, before they declared it to be Christian or declared it to be pagan or whatever it may be, they continued to conquer. Christianity was simply absorbed into that. And so everything that is looked at that was being done at that particular time, people say, well, that's because of Christianity. But it's just simply the Roman Empire doing what they did. When, when Missy and I were able to go over to Italy... Catholic churches everywhere. Beautiful, massive, old Catholic churches. You, you run into people, what are you? I'm a Catholic. But then we sell over to Greece. Everybody there is Greek Orthodox. Because that's about who they are. In fact, I remember one of our tour guides in Greece telling us to say you are a Greek Orthodox is the same as saying I am Greek. Because they associate that with their nationalism. It's often argued that Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland are fighting a religious war. But folks, they're not fighting over baptism. They're not fighting over uh, you know, uh, salvation by faith or communion or anything like that. Folks, they are fighting over autonomy and retribution and ultimately who gets to run the country. And it's politicians who run those things. Throughout history, Christians have been critical of this, and they have sought to distinguish ourselves. We've got to say there's something different about the kingdom of God and the nations of the earth. We cannot intertwine these things because Jesus didn't. Jesus said, listen, my kingdom is not of this world. If it had been of this world, he said, my people, my servants, they would fight. But he said, it's not. What are we taught in the kingdom of God, we're taught to love and to pray for our enemies, not to destroy them. Our greatest impact has always been among the poor, the oppressed, and the persecuted. The teachings of Jesus are embraced the most where Christians live underground and they are persecuted. Did you know that some of the fastest growing uh, of Christianity right now is in the Middle East. It's in Asia, places where Christianity is outlawed. You guess where you're seeing all these declines? In places where it is the state religion. Because we become dormant. The Christianity was not meant to grow in that environment. James and John, they asked Jesus, can we sit at your right and left hand? In other words, we want this place of power. Do you remember what Jesus said? He says, you know that those who consider rulers and Gentiles, they lord it over others. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Christianity is not about having political or military power over others. It's about serving others. Jesus never led a revolt. He absorbed the sin of humanity on the cross. He even prayed for his murderers while on that cross. That, folks, is what makes Christianity amazing. Not our political power. But we don't deny that Christians have carried out violence and injustice. But I think we also need to understand that there are some things that have been said about Christianity that have been way over-exaggerated. Anybody read uh, Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, or see the movie? He's really talented. I know some of you are like, oh, I don't know. He had some stuff in there. I don't know if I was a Christian. I can raise my hand. I did. I saw the movie, read the book. Um, he's an excellent writer, but he put some things in there that he says are facts that just simply are not. One of those, he says, is that he claimed the church in Europe killed 5 million women during the European witch trials. But most scholars, not fictional writers, scholars will tell you, no, the number is more like 40 to 50,000 and 20% of those are women. Now, that's still terrible. We don't, we don't look at that and say that's okay, but it's certainly not the millions that some of these people put out there. The American version of the Salem trials is, is also similar, exaggerated, because they say thousands of women were killed. Historians tell us there were less than 25 women. 19 of those were sentenced to death, and the others, they died in captivity. It's still terrible. But you add up all the numbers of deaths from the Crusades to the Inquisition to the witch trials of Europe and the Americans, and we find that Christians killed between 200 and 250,000 people over a course of 500 years. Again, not acceptable, but it's certainly not the numbers that people have placed to us, and especially since many of these were killed in the context of warring armies of nations and not Christians who have led these fights. But let's do this. Let's look over the last 100 years. The most violent regimes of humankind have been driven by atheistic philosophies that have rejected religion and God. They created some of the most horrific violence the world has ever seen. Hitler in Germany in the final solution killed 6 million Jews, gypsies, homosexuals, on and on we go. The Khmer Rouge of Cambodia killed two million of their own people. Stalin of Russia killed 20 million through mass slayings in labor camps. Mao, who was a China, he killed 50 to 70 million of his own people. And you do the math and you've got about 100 million people who were killed with these atheistic philosophies over the last 100 years. You compare that to the 200,000 people over 500 years that people have tried to attribute to Christianity, and you say, they're both terrible. 
But what's ironic is that people try to lay the blame of the atrocities of the past on Christians, on all Christians. That somehow we are responsible for every bad thing that happened. And if that is the case, then shouldn't the same responsibility be given to those who are atheists? A hundred million people in a hundred years. And I think we as Christians would say, no, I don't think that's what we should do because I don't think that's reasonable and I don't think it's logical to do that. But yet that's what is often done with us. That's the kind of things you tell people when they say it's a bunch of hypocrites. That's what they say when they say all wars were started by religion. What is fair to contrast are the worldviews of Christianity and atheistic worldviews and see which one truly has cared for the injustices, about the injustices of the world. The fundamental belief of secular atheism, according to, to Darwin in his Origin of Species, is the idea that only the strongest survive, resulting in killing or, or the exclusion of weaker groups. But Christianity says, no, we are all made in the image of God. No matter how weak or how strong, no matter how able or disabled, people have worth. It's Jesus who taught us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. That we are to care for the, for the orphans and the widows. That we fight for the weakest and the most vulnerable who are among us. Christianity pushes back against this nature because I'm here to tell you, it's not natural for us to push against that hate and the oppression and the exclusionism and the enslavement of our passions. The majority of cultures throughout history have had slaves. But it is Christianity that has always led the charge against slavery. The very first in our English colonies was the Quakers. Not only did they uh, say slavery was wrong, they didn't allow their members to have slaves. They were doing this in the 1600s, folks. They were doing this almost 200 years before the Civil War. It wasn't an atheist who fought against slavery in the British Empire. It was a Christian, a guy by the name of William Wilberforce. Now, that doesn't mean every Christian took up the fight against slavery. It doesn't mean that there weren't Christians who said they think slavery is okay. But it's to say that Christianity is the one who led the charge. It was people like in our own faith tradition of David Lipscomb. David Lipscomb lived in the South. He lived in Nashville before the Civil War, during the time of the Civil War, after the Civil War, he opposed slavery. He would not fight for the South. He would not fight for the North because there's Christians on each side. When he was four years old, his father, who had become a Christian and he began studying, he, he came to the conclusion that it's wrong to own, own people. He moved his family from Tennessee, where it was illegal to release slaves, to go to Illinois, where it was legal. You could, you could set your slaves free. It was a costly decision. Lipscomb lost his mother in Illinois because the ground that they were living on was poisoned. Christianity is what changed their views on these issues. 
One of the very founders of the restoration movement was Barton W. Stone, and he had this, this turning point at the Cane Ridge Revival in 1801. He determined to give freedom to the slaves that he owned, and then he led other people to free their slaves. We could go on and on. We just don't have time. But if you want to come to me and say, listen, churches are filled with hypocrites, I'm going to tell you, yeah, they are. But that doesn't mean Christianity isn't true, and it doesn't mean it doesn't work. God confronts us with our sins, and we choose to run away from Him, or we choose to push into Him and deal with the tension that we are feeling at that particular moment. Because I'm here to tell you, even in our day and time, these, these issues of humanity and, 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 and caring about people, that, that's not something that, that stopped with the Civil War. It's not, it didn't stop with the Crusades. It didn't stop with the Inquisition and all of these other things. Folks, we still have these issues today. How do we see human life? How is human life being treated And maybe even in areas that politically we might differ. Humanity. This isn't to excuse the hypocrisy in the church. But no one puts a higher moral demand on people than Jesus. His vision for us is to live as new creations in the world. True Christians, they don't drown witches. They don't burn people at the stake. They don't destroy their enemies, but rather they give them a glass of water and they wash their feet. True Christianity is not the enemy of humanity. Folks, it is our only hope. And you may be a person and you've struggled with this issue and you want to talk more about this issue, please come to me, talk to me, or talk to someone else you may know in this church. Because I'm here to tell you, Jesus came to change the world and he did. And he came to change you. And that's one of the reasons we have things like growth track, because we want people to move from this pew into learning more about who we are knowing what we stand for. Now, I'm going to be the first to tell you, we're, we're going to fail you sometimes. And I say we, I mean we. But thank God that Jesus is our standard of perfection and not the preacher who stands up here and not our elders and not our deacons and not our, any other member, or male or female in this church. Jesus, Jesus is our example and we lean into him and we continue to let him to change us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this day and Father, for the wrongs that we've done, we ask for repentance. Father, I pray that if we as, as this community of believers, if we have not been a, a good example of your son in our community, Father, help us to see it. Help us to live it. Help us to make those changes. Father, we're so thankful for your grace and your mercy because we are so imperfect. 
But Father, we thank you for the changes that you've helped us to make. We thank you that you save us and that you love us despite the fact that we just continue to do things that, that are not right. Father, help us to be a light into our, our world. Help us to be a light into the people that we see at school, at our jobs, people in community activities. Father, help them to see your Son more than they see us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.